10-year period from February 1998 to March 2008, exactly 10 years. That's a key decade that turned the tables on this whole genocidal system. We're going to go into how that happened today. Now, 10 years later, March 4th, 2008, the reason we say it was 10 years is because on that date, Squamish Chief Capilano in Vancouver formally evicted all those genocidal churches from his territory. He filed that eviction notice in the B.C. Supreme Court. That court issued a legal right of entry, giving me and the other agents of Capilano the legal right of entry into these churches. And remember, if you can remember that time, that's exactly the month we began the church occupations. And sure enough, soon after that, within weeks, the church and the government all started buckling, started talking about apologies and investigations that, of course, never happened, but it broke their back. When we had the law on our side and we started seizing what they loved, as it says in the Art of War, go after what the enemy loves and they'll buckle, well, we proved it. And it took exactly 10 years to build a momentum to achieve that, but we did it. Now, this program has been broadcasting since the dawn of the Republic of Canada in 2015. Today, on January 29th, 2023, believe it or not, it's a joy and an honor for me to be with here with all of you, still alive and kicking, to celebrate these coming months and to continue to lead the fight against a murderous genocide that's continuing as we speak. The proof of that mass murder is found at murderbydecree.com, and our answer to it is at republicofkanata.org, K-N-A-A-T-A. Now, Another thing that if folks want to see the whole history, and you don't mind uh, staying up for a while reading about it, the text of a recent interview I did spanning that whole period and really our whole campaign can be found now. If you go to republicofcanada.org, go into breaking news. It's the latest posting. It's called Understanding the Present Tyranny, the World's Oldest and Greatest Crime, and the Man Who Brought It to Light Since 1992 an illustrated interview with Kevin Annett. Now, that really gives you the the whole picture, and next time people say, where's the proof, refer them to that. So that's at republicanofcanada.org under breaking news or murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates, the latest post in there. Well, Thomas Jefferson said that the true history of the American Revolution can never be written, but its spirit continues to inspire. And I think about that today, trying to sum up for people these last 25 years. It's really impossible. How do you sum up the human cost, all of these faces of people who are so intimate, so involved in the struggle, most of whom are all dead now? All of the indigenous people involved in that campaign either dead or scattered. But nevertheless, like our ancestors, we have declared our independence from the blood-soaked system that caused their death and the death of so many innocents. A blood-soaked system of church, state, and big money. And we're waging a war now to stop forever its atrocities and crimes by uprooting that system. We're here to educate and inspire you every week into such an act of resistance, but also to go beyond talk, to train you how to fight and win, as we've won in the past, against much bigger adversaries and also how to build an alternative to the COVID corporatocracy in our self-governing free republics, a movement now that spans nine countries, not just in Canada, but in America, in Europe, and Australia, linked in the Sovereign Republic Alliance movement. We can't do any of that, of course, unless we first know our enemy and know ourselves, and by seeing where we have come from and where we are going. So, That's what we're going to do today on the show. We'll be preparing you for the coming months, and especially for events we're going to be holding during February and March, and those months especially, because it's when we're going to commemorate important dates in our movement. Here's a few of them. Um, First of all, uh, February the 1st, that's the date the residential school lawsuits began in 1996. February the 9th, when we held that forum in downtown Vancouver, over 600 people for the first time, February 9th, 1998. A lot of them survivors for the first time talking about the crimes. February the 11th, of course, when we knocked out Joe Ratzinger, Pope Benedict from office. February 24th, when our sister Harriet Nahani was murdered in Surrey Remand Prison in Vancouver. And February 26th, when our brother William Coombs was murdered by lethal injection at St. Paul's Catholic Hospital in Vancouver after his reporting seeing Queen Elizabeth take those 10 children from the Kamloops death camp in 1964. All of those dates, important times to remember. 
Why? Why do we need to do this? Well, because the Indian residential school death camps were a trial run for the present COVID police state today. And the system responsible and that's continuing to inflict that crime has to bury the truth of the past to ensure the tyranny today. It's also going to bury the real story and those of us who brought out the truth at the cost of everything. You know the past. You know what they've done to other groups. You'll know what they're going to do to you today and tomorrow. That's why the history is so important, friends. And that's what part of the theme is today. But like I say, do your own research. Go to those links at murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org. It's also a very basic feeling of abhorrence. Knowing what they did to the innocent, what they still do, how can we possibly live in this system and pay its taxes and go about every day as if the slaughter isn't, hasn't happened and those children aren't buried right beneath our feet? That's what motivated me. That's what motivated others. But the lessons of those 25 years are essential for our battles today because the, there's what I call the four C's. There's the crime. There's the campaign to expose it. There's the cover-up that's happened since then and the continuation of the genocide, now led, of course, by China and the Vatican-led corporatocracy. Well, we've beaten them in the past. We can do it again, but only through knowledge, through clarity, through will and commitment. And those qualities, frankly, are all lacking these days. People flit about from issue to issue without will, without clarity, without the commitment to know where the enemy is weakest and to strike at that point. Now, we're talking about the Vatican and China-led corporatocracy. The system is still very upset when we start going after these churches because they are the Vatican Bank, as we've told you in the past, is the main funder of the Chinese expansion across the world, but especially on the front line in Australia and in North America here in Turtle Island. The more we expose that real history of genocide, the more it reveals the nature of what we're up against today, how one grew from the other, the covid tyranny grew out of the genocide inflicted on the innocent here in Canada and elsewhere. And so, that's the important dates, as we've talked about. And it's really quite marvelous when you think back, and when I think back, how rich those years are, those 10 years where we just didn't give up. I mean, I was in complete poverty. I was living out of my car. My children had been taken from me. I was on a blacklist. And yet, despite all that and the death threats that were coming down any day and the physical and legal assaults happening all the time, it didn't stop me or any of the people around me at the time because we were fed by an inner fire that couldn't be quenched. You know, when you, your back is to the wall and you have nothing left to lose, that's when you learn how to fight and be a true man or woman. And it's no accident that the people who were with me in those churches doing the occupations were all destitute, homeless Native people, because they had nothing left to lose, and they knew it. But here's some of the lessons we learned from that decade and beyond. The first one, always define the issue and set the terms of battle yourself, on your terms, not on the enemies. We didn't go along with the contrived narrative that the genocide was about a few children being sexually, quote, abused, a vacuous, meaningless term. No, it is about mass murder and genocide. We use the term, now everyone today is using it, because you stay on it, and you set the terms of battle yourself. Second lesson, be vocal and public always with all of your evidence and never stop, never give up. Three, you strike unexpectedly where they're weak and vulnerable, like in their church services, their collection plates, their public image. That's what you go after. You don't do what they expect, like a protest or a petition or any of that other crap that is what they want because it's, it's plain on terms that they control. You rely only on yourselves, you set your own agenda, and you never trust the enemy. You don't negotiate, you don't make demands on them, because that's expecting them to do something in return. It, it's almost de facto saying, yes, you have the power, just please do what we want. You establish your own justice, and that's the real lesson that came out of this, you know, over many years. We need to establish our own justice. We conduct our own investigations in courts. That's how the idea of the common law courts came about. The idea of the common law was around more than 10 years ago, but it's achieved such popularity now because we showed that it works. Common law courts work. It forced Ratzinger and three cardinals out of office when we conducted the International Common Law Court of Justice in Europe. When we seized the churches, when we did our own excavations, like in the mush hole in Brantford, and found the bones, it forced the change. We didn't go to anybody to ask for that. We created the justice ourselves. So even the fact of voicing 
that agenda, saying, no, we're going to take this action. It forces the enemy on the, the defensive. It destabilizes them. It makes them afraid because they've got a lot to cover up and be afraid about. And it provokes them to overreact. And I know a brilliant example of this I can give right after I got fired. And we all learn these things. I mean, I learned as I went on this. Uh, you know, none of us are like Athena jumping fully born out of the head of the god Zeus. You know, we're, we learn these things as we go. And a perfect example of how I began to learn was right after my firing and uh, after the United Church had gone to my wife, Anne, and said, now's the time to divorce him. We'll pay for your divorce. All of that came out later. It was in December 1995. And I, w- I was holding with some friends a protest at the United Church uh, Conference Office on 4th Avenue in Vancouver. And Harriet Nahani, this eyewitness to the murder of Maisie Shaw at the O'Burney Residential School, she heard about her protest. She came, and for the first time, she spoke about the murder of a child at a residential school. And that was the first time any Canadian media reported it, December 18th, 1995. Well, it was hilarious because the next day, the United Church National Office releases, makes a uh, frantic press release saying, we weren't aware of this crime and we didn't cover it up. Well, the funny thing about them saying that is that no one had then accused them of a cover-up. But they blurred out, oh, we didn't cover up anything, which, in other words, was an admission of, yes, they did. But they, they overreacted. We provoked them like a mosquito in the elephant's ear. We provoked a bigger adversary to overreact. And I remember reporters come in, to me saying, well, that's pretty much an admission of guilt, wouldn't you say? And sure enough, lawyers for the residential school survivors for the first time, within a month of the United Church overreacting like that, guess what? February 1st, 1996, the first lawsuits against the churches about their death camps, residential school death camps. It begins. And I know because I was an advisor to that first group of plaintiffs from Port Alberni. And that's a, a lot of how it began. So it shows you that you provoke your bigger adversary, they can always react on your terms. But you've got to unlearn a lot of what you've, you know, what you've been taught about the way to have uh, proper dissent and protest, which is just on the terms of the adversary. So establishing our own justice increasingly became our focus over the years, especially after the church and state moved in to co-opt the whole issue. Now they're even talking about the graves. And it's, you know, friends, it's incredible, the Orwellian mind swab they've done over the last few years. We've eventually forced them to admit that, yeah, there are mass graves. At one point, during their farcical Truth and Reconciliation Commission that the churches and governments set up to investigate themselves, they appointed the commissioners looking into their crimes, right? For seven years it operated, from 2008, when we forced it into being, to 2015. And... They were admitting, the head of it, uh, Murray Sinclair, this Tuppen native chief, was saying, yes, half the children were dying. And so, in other words, tens of thousands of children, they agreed with us. Front page of the Globe and Mail, April 24th, 2007, acknowledged the 50% death rate. Yet now, all of that's been swabbed on the memory hole, and they're saying, oh no, only 215 children died, and we don't know where they are, and there was no mass graves. So they're able to do that because they keep erasing history, and that's why... The show today and all of our other actions are going to be designed to put it back in the face of these murderers, these cowards and child killers, and we're going to say, no, you're rewriting history again. Here is the real history, because the real history is a great weapon in our hands. So that's leading up to what we're going to be doing in February and March, and a little kind of overview. Two phases. The first phase in the early half of February, we're going to be doing teach-ins, starting in that week between the 1st and the 11th, especially on the anniversary, 25th anniversary, with that first public forum at Simon Fraser Harbor Center in downtown Vancouver in 1998 when we did the first public gathering. We're going to be doing online and in-person teach-ins to equip all of you with the knowledge of what the crime is, how it's continuing. And during that period, February 9th to 11th uh, next month is kind of important, not only because of that anniversary, and February the 11th, the day in uh, 2013 that we knocked Joe uh, Ratzinger out of office, that's when he resigned after our common law court verdict came out. February 10th, in between that, is my birthday, and I officially turned two-thirds of a century old. Yes, I'm 67 years old on February 10th. Now, that's a very odd number because... <laughs> I don't feel 67, right? And people say, well, you don't, sure as hell don't look 67, Kev. And you're not acting like a 67-year-old, which is good. 
But we're going to celebrate that in various ways. So those three days are going to be kind of a, um, the kickoff and the focus of our teachings. So if you want to be part of those teachings, you can do it online in group calls. You can do it face-to-face in our local Republic assemblies and cell groups, not only in Canada, but in the nine other countries where we're working with our allies. And if you want to be part of that, just write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. And uh, you can also write to me, AngelFire101 at ProtonMail.com. So that's the first phase, the teaching and preparation. Now, the teaching isn't just abstract words. It's, they're training workshops, too, in civil disobedience. And uh, reclaiming, what does it mean to go in and reclaim properties, churches, and everything? We have the lawful right to do that. As I mentioned earlier, since March 2008, I've had the legal right of entry into all of the churches in the Vancouver area, but by connection all across Canada. That's why the police never confronted us. They always stood back when we occupied churches, because I just showed them the Supreme Court writ and order from Capilano, saying all of those churches, they're illegal trespassers. Any of you in Vancouver, every single Catholic and Anglican and United Church in the lower mainland, mainland is illegally squatting on Capilano's traditional territory. He ordered them off. It's a legal document. We can go and enforce it any time and lawfully seize those church properties, tell these child killers to get off our land. So we have the legal right to do that, and we're going to be training you how to go about doing that. Second phase, we're going to be putting into action on the Sundays and the week following. Sunday, February 12th, Sunday, February 19th, Sunday, February 26th, church actions. And those are the ones where we really want you out. Now, especially February 26th, that's Sunday. That's the anniversary of the medical murder of my brother, William Coombs, in St. Paul's Hospital. Like we've done every year, we're going to have a coffin, we're going to have bullhorns, we're going to be outside St. Paul's Hospital at the corner of Burrard and Helmlichen Street, for all of you in Vancouver. I want you there at 11 a.m. Sunday, February the 26th. And at other locations across Canada and around the world that we'll let you know about. But if you're not in Vancouver, go to a Catholic church and raise hell on that day at that time. But for those in Vancouver, meet outside St. Paul's Hospital. We're going to have a rally there with the bullhorn. We're going to be confronting all of the people, not just William, who was killed in that hospital by lethal injection, by arsenic poison, and according to his nurse, Chloe Kirker, whose affidavit we have posted. But... Traditionally, St. Paul's hospitals, where they would bring the dead bodies of children who had been killed in the North Shore and other lower mainland residential schools, death camps, and they would process them with fake death certificates through St. Paul's Hospital. So that's a real genocidal target. Now, after the rally at noon, we're marching down the street to the scene of the crime, Holy Rosary Cathedral, and the scene of the greatest victory, where William and others occupied the church that day, and we forced the change. And we actually forced the priest to run out the back door. That was a great moment. And it was so beautiful to see William, who couldn't even tolerate being near a church. He'd hear church bells, and he'd start getting physically ill, because the priest at the mission in Kamloops death camps used to put him on a rack and sodomize him with a cattle prod. And so whenever he saw a cross or heard a church bell, he used to throw up. But there, that day, he's in there, the church, with us, handing out leaflets, emboldened and reinforced by all of us. The power of numbers on our great spirit that day forced the priest out and allowed William in. And he overcame that fear that day. It was amazing. He stopped drinking. The power of our numbers and our strength together. You don't do it by yourself, folks. You do it together. That's how our love and how truth is manifested together. So we're going to do it again, February 26th. I want to see you all down there. And we're going to go down uh, to that church and reclaim it again. Uh, Two years ago, when we first did this march and action, we reclaimed the park across the street. It's called Cathedral Square. We thought, no, better name for it is the William Coombs Memorial Park. We set up a plaque there that day. Uh, They took it down, of course, but we put it up again. We're going to go down that day after the march and have a big rally and picnic there and put it in the face of all those papists in that church and those child killers who still get away with crime, who still have a policy of covering up child rape that the state allows. We're going to end their regime. So those are some of the really important actions to do. And I don't want to hear any more excuses about how you got other things to do. If you can't get involved in stopping the killers of children, what the hell can you get involved in? Finally, a follow-up after February, we're going to be doing leadership training schools in the Republic of Canada. People who want to go beyond uh, merely these actions, but prepare to take back our nation from these killers of church, state, and corporatocracy. It's going to begin March 11th and 12th, that weekend. 
leadership training schools. And these lessons can be applied to anybody. I just had a good talk with people in Australia who are doing the same thing. And um, so to be part of those training schools, write to us at Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. And this, of course, is part of the bigger campaign that we call the three R's, not reading, writing, and arithmetic, no. Resist, reclaim, reestablish. We resist the system. We reclaim what's been taken from us. We reestablish it on our terms under new sovereign republics. That's our agenda, folks. For now, it changes and evolves and gets better all the time. Now, I'm going to rest my voice. We're going to take a, a midpoint break here and, and hear two really good clips. Uh, one is a speech from a great, beautiful man called Eugene Debs. Uh, he was the leader of the anti-war and the, the People's Socialist Movement at the turn of the century. He led the railway workers in strikes. He ran for U.S. president inside a jail and got three million votes part of the populist movement of working people and farmers back then. Eugene Debs made a speech against World War I that got him thrown in the slammer. We're going to hear that now. That's the fact that the face of war never changes. It's all about big money trying to get more money. And the second part, of course, is that beautiful Declaration of Independence that inspires all of us and has directly inspired our Republic of Canada. So after those two clips, we'll be back for more. After Woodrow Wilson had been elected president on a pledge that he would not go to war, uh, the United States declared war and entered the sort of slaughterhouse going on in Europe. Socialists opposed this. The socialist leader, Eugene Debs, in uh, June of 1918, made a speech in Canton, Ohio, uh, about the war. He was uh, sent to prison uh, for 10 years. approved by a unanimous Supreme Court. This is the speech that led to his imprisonment. Sam Johnson declared that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. He must have had the Wall Street gentry in mind, (laughs) or at least their prototypes, for in every age, It has been the tyrant, the oppressor, and the exploiter who has wrapped himself in the cloak of patriotism or religion or both to deceive and overawe the people. Every solitary one of these aristocratic conspirators and would-be murderers claims to be an arch-patriot. Every one of them insists that the war is being waged to make the world safe for democracy. (laughs) What humbug. (laughs) What rot. What false pretense. Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. In the Middle Ages, where the feudal lords concluded to enlarge their domains, to increase their power, their prestige, and their wealth, they declared war upon one another. But they themselves did not go to war any more than the modern feudal lords, the barons of Wall Street, go to war. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor, ignorant serfs had been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and the glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And that is war in a nutshell. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class had everything to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class 
has had nothing to gain and everything to lose, especially their lives. They have always taught you and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, the people have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. The working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war, and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, yours just to do or die. That is their motto, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain un... What's that word there? Unalienable. With certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is in the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Bless you. God save our American states! God save our American states! break is made. Now our work begins. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. It is the will of heaven that Britain and America should be sundered forever. It may be the will of heaven that America shall suffer calamities still more wasting and distresses yet more dreadful. I am well aware of the toil of blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. 
Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction. And that was that second one was actually from the series, um, public television series called John Adams. And uh, that was from a letter, one of John Adams' letters to his wife Abigail, who was also a big force in the in the revolution. And you know, it speaks so much to me right now because when I urge people to get our book, Establishing Liberty: The Case for Canada, because the words are very similar in our Declaration of Independence that we made January fifteenth, twenty fifteen, in Winnipeg. Two hundred and twenty one of us gathered, and we made that declaration of independence saying the way you practice your unalienable liberties is by practicing them. (laughs) Unalienable rights only come alive when they're practiced. They may be inherent, but they're not automatic. And so by declaring independence, you're saying we're heading out on a new direction. We are, by our entire attitude to life now by the way we look at ourselves and the world around us. It's in a new way. We are separated in our hearts and our minds and increasingly around us. And unless you're sovereign in your own mind that way, you can't act in the world except as a slave, as someone looking to the old system all the time for an answer. And so that Declaration of Independence, when we made it, we realized it's the start. It was the birth of something. And, you know, the, the many beautiful phrases in there uh, that come out of people's lives. It isn't just somebody sitting in a room, Tom Jefferson and Franklin and Adams made up these words. It came out of a lived experience. And the right of the people to all, alter or abolish government is inherent. And, you know, it is interesting, they signed that declaration the same day that 150 British warships showed up in harbor outside New York, ready to bombard them into oblivion. And yet they go ahead and did that. And one-third of the signers ended up dead after that, or scattered. And we found the same thing in Canada. When you make the declaration, it's really not simply a declaration of independence and war. It's a recognition of the war already upon us. We are defending ourselves and conducting that war on our own terms. And that's why I urge all of you to get the book, Establishing Liberty, the Case for Canada. Go to republicofcanada.org. It's right on the front page how to order it. Because right now we are engaged in a great civil war, and the experience of the last eight years, of eight years ago this month when we declared independence, we struggled for a long time. Many of the people fell away, but a core of us continued. And when the COVID tyranny began in March 2020, our membership increased tenfold. Within a few weeks, we had 40 functioning republic assemblies across Canada. Now there's eight. They were all wiped out one way or the other and painfully reconstructed. Part of it wasn't simply from sabotage. It's because you throw a lot of people together who don't know each other, who have different levels of commitment, consciousness, uh, determination, and it falls apart. So we restructured that. We said the way you operate on the ground to survive these waves, if we're going to build an alternative, is you start where you are in small groups natural groups, cell groups of three people. And we've had enormous success since then, but it's not the kind of success you see right away. It's off the radar, as the way it should be. It's best to operate that way, not only for security, but because that's the war we're involved in right now. It's a guerrilla war we're in. And in theory, republic assemblies and courts are established to pass and enforce their own laws. That's how a republic comes about from the grassroots. Many stories of previous uh, revolutions, like in Ireland, my people, a hundred years ago, they set up their own Brehan Law courts rather than British Crown Law and began to function to defend those courts in their own communities across Ireland. The same thing with us. We established these assemblies and common law courts to pass and enforce our own laws, as we've done, especially against the COVID laws. And when the police show up, we show them our citizenship cards. It functions. It works. 
And and as a matter of fact, we have support from the police. We even have cells within the police now operating of sympathizers. So it gradually extends itself like a mustard seed, if you like, vines everywhere. But a lot of it you can't see. And the theory establishing those assemblies and courts, the practice is, the way it works on the ground most efficiently is, it's got to be led by these cell groups who reach out, they contact people through the old community organizing methods of face-to-face, door-to-door, educating people in their communities to take action. That's how we form leadership cadre. That's how we form the seeds in the communities of these future assemblies and courts. It's a longer, more painstaking process, but it's more durable. It sinks roots, and you don't operate unless you have that great ocean to swim in of, called the people. You can't do it on your own. It's got to be in union with people. And so, uh, you know, I mean, those are the things you learn on the ground by doing it. But like I say, it's, it's not, it may be inherent, but it's not automatic. You've got to force that change yourself through your consistent action, not once, not twice, but it's a whole lifestyle of how we operate. So like I say, I said earlier, we're going to have training sessions for you starting the weekend of March 11th and 12th to do that. And uh, for the last part of the show, I want to um, share something that's actually in one of my books, but it's, it's instructive. It's from my book, Unbroken, My Life as a Truth Teller, and it's Chapter 5, which is called Coming of Age in Kannada. And I start, and uh, I know this inspired me when I discovered from our family history that Something I was told as a kid, but it never made any, it didn't kind of register until later when it was very relevant. My great-great-great-grandfather, Philip Annett, had been involved in the rebellion in 1837 in what's now Ontario in Upper Canada. They emigrated. His, uh, ironically, um, his father, my great-great-great-great-grandfather, Robert Annett, had been a serving officer in the British Army. He had been a Waterloo veteran, and he had been given land in Upper Canada, in the New World, as a retired British Army officer. So they settled near what's now um, Watford, that's between London and Sarnia in southern Ontario. And uh, uh, a few years ago, I actually found the old family cemetery with all their graves kind of overgrown by weeds. And when Philip took up arms, even though his dad had been a loyal British uh, officer, he took up arms against the family compact, that's the, the oligarchy that still runs Canada, crown, bankers, and bishops. And uh, he wrote a letter back to our family in Wiltshire, England. And here's what he wrote. I was agreeably surprised when I came here to discover what a rich land it is. You can grow corn, wheat, and any kind of crop with hardly any dung. Here there are no game wardens or lords over you, no poor laws, scarcely any taxes. This is a land of liberty and plenty where we're held in esteem by our neighbors, and we aim to keep it that way. Well, just a few years later, he took up, took up arms to create that republic. And we're standing in his tradition, I know I am, of that failed attempt, yet nothing has ever failed. In the art of war, they teach us that there's no final outcome in a great battle. It's learning and carrying on. The element that's needed is persistence and determination and will, not thinking you're going to win overnight, which you never do. And so... After that, it was interesting because um, the family legend is that Philip took up the only family musket and he went off to fight with the rebels. They headed to York, which is now Toronto, but they didn't get there in time. The rebellion had been crushed. Fortunately, Philip evaded the hangman or wouldn't be talking to you today. And uh, he had uh, eight children, including his eldest son, James, and James' son, uh, Calvin, and Calvin's son, Ross, and Ross's son, William, and William's son, me. And in that direct lineage, uh, this story of the Republic was passed on. And, um, you know, I remember I I cited that at the first opening convention of the Republic of Canada in Winnipeg, January 15th, 2015. And I remember saying, uh, here's from the speech I gave, none of us are obligated to hold allegiance to a foreign criminal regime like the Crown of England. Its authority has rested on a false jurisdiction violently imposed on all of us. If we are ever to wipe away the stain of genocide in Canada, it will only happen through a republic that reclaims the land and its wealth for all the people within a federation of equal nations. We must recover the dream of equality of our ancestors. And when you look at the flag of our republic, 
the uh, three stars represent the English, the French, the indigenous nations. And there's these blue lines as well, which represents the Turo Wampum, which was the original treaty signed between my ancestors and the indigenous. And it said, we go down the river side by side, sharing the land, not one over the other. And that's the vision of Canada. We will be and are a federation of equal nations. We've already signed treaties with both Métis and Chilcotin sovereign nations. These are not the puppet tribal council, chief and council set up by the genocidal regime in Ottawa. These are the traditional clan mothers and elders and the people on the ground who are struggling for their identity under the gun. They've signed treaties with our nation, our sovereign nation. We recognize and support each other. That's how our federated nation comes about. Again, republicofkanata.org, write to us, Republic National Council, at protonmail.com to get involved in this. But uh, just in reading some things from this, Chapter 8, Coming of Age in Canada, um, and, you know, I remember citing uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, Philip, um, the, the the meaning Kanata is from a Haudenosaunee word meaning our village, where it actually means where the people sit as one around the council fire. And Canada, as it stands, has always operated in the opposite way, by the rule of the few over the many. Canadians don't even realize that the head of state is appointed by a foreign monarch, criminally convicted, not only Elizabeth, but her son Charles, who had a direct role in the death of William Coombs. We know for a fact that so-called King Charles, was involved in the kill order that came out of Buckingham Palace that murdered William Coombs, February 26, 2011. And more of that is going to be coming out. He's already been indicted and called to account for that. But that monarch, that murderous monarch in London, rules the whole country through the so-called governor-general, who can remove the government at any point. 80% of the laws in Canada in Canada, are passed order and council, which means, no, they're not even seen by an elected member of parliament or anybody. They're done order and council. Now, the Privy Council is a body of old cronies, uh, you know, former prime ministers, bureaucrats, their corporate friends. They get together and write laws and pass them and say, you all have to obey them. 80% of the laws in Canada, that's how they come about. A few guys in a room. The old feudal system. The judiciary is not independent. The Chief Justice of the Canadian Supreme Court sits on the Privy Council. So there's no separation of the judicial or the executive. And the Parliament itself, you elect a member of Parliament and you're committing treason because their oath of allegiance, guess what, can you recite it? Do you know what the oath of allegiance of a member of Parliament in Canada is? I swear true faith and obedience to, used to be Queen Elizabeth, now it's King Charles and his descendants, period. Not to the people, not to the Constitution, or let alone a republic of the self-governing people. That means that when you elect somebody to Parliament, you're not only signing away your authority, you're committing treason. You're handing over that authority to a criminal foreign regime. That's why you shouldn't vote, shouldn't pay taxes. Instead of voting, mark on the ballot, Republic of Canada. We've already set up an alternative balloting system where you can join your local assembly and get involved. Well, you know, all of this is, is an example of what you can do. And... That's why I say to people, it's not a matter of even asking, what do I do anymore? It's all right there for you to see, on not only those websites, but on our active work in the community. Now, here's where I, what I witnessed on the ground, and this is a really important factor that we need to look at, because it's, it's like the idea of dead children, or the reality of dead children in the ground. Nobody wants to look at it, especially when we know the churches did it and are doing it. The reality is, is that our minds are not our own anymore. I mean, traditionally, they're not anyway, but it takes a long time to recover your own mind. But the technology deployed against us now, that's one of the reasons the residential schools and Indian hospital death camps were set up, to perfect that mind control technology. You know, we have, in all the research we did and the campaigns over the years, we acquired a lot of knowledge about what went on in these Indian hospitals, how all of the records were officially sealed right after that first tribunal we started in June 1998. They, within a month, they had officially sealed all the Indian hospital records. Why? Well, as we discovered after accessing some through people within the government who leaked them to us, a lot of the Indian hospital research had to do with how to control the human mind. This was done through expatriate Nazi scientists, most of whom came to Canada after the war uh, to get fake passports under 
Project Paperclip to work in not only NASA, but the MKM Ultra Mind Control experiments in hospitals like the Nanaimo Indian Hospital, the RW Large Hospital run by the United Church in Bella Bella, B.C., the Lakehead Psychiatric Hospital, the uh, Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, uh, the um, Lincoln Park Air Force Base Hospital in Calgary, all of these places, they were inserting nanoprobes into the midbrain section of native children to see how to control them. And adults, they used pain threshold experiment tortures to see how to control the mind under stress. All of these technologies now being deployed against us. Originally chemically through a thing called chlorpromazine, which is called the uh, the ultimate date rape, rape drug. Um, and it's it's a way to wipe away critical consciousness. You can still function, but your conscious mind doesn't work anymore, nor does your will. Well, if you look around today, folks, and, and I experience this all the time with people, uh, they agree with you, but then they just kind of stare at you blankly and aren't able to act on their own convictions. That isn't accidental. That's because of mind control techniques. Now, chemical means of mind control aren't as effective because the human body is quite variable, and people react differently to chem- different chemicals. You can dump chlorpromazine in the water of a city, and yeah, a lot of people will become the kind of zombies you see nowadays, but it doesn't work on everyone. What works on everybody is the electronic matrix, and we know that the U.S. Air Force and their Nazi scientist friends perfected this in the 50s and 60s and beyond, using not just Native children, but a lot of different other people. But they find that, uh, as we've talked about in the show, you set up a five-point uh, energy grid within the human body through nanoprobes injected through, of course, vaccines, so pseudo-vaccines. And you can control the human mind becomes a radio receptor. You can literally control the thoughts, the emotions uh, of, of anybody who's plugged into this network. Well, since about 95% of humanity is now part of that, it's not a hell of a lot of people who are going to be able to recover their minds to take this action. And that's why we don't. We say to people, don't worry when your assemblies are taken down. People are not in control of their own minds. And that may not change for a long time. But we don't need large numbers, don't forget. It took two dozen of us to force the issue of agenda, uh, issue of genocide onto the agenda in Canada. And you strike where the enemy is weak with the right weapon at the right moment, and you can move mountains. It's like Napoleon says, in every battle there's a favorable moment. The great art is to know when to seize it. And we've done that successfully in the past. So despite all of that new technology arrayed against us, and which keeps us from acting on our convictions, we know it can be overcome. There's a part of us, our higher energy, because we're all energy, we're not matter, that's an illusion. Our higher energy can overcome that. And those of us who are still around these days are a living example of that. So don't take despair from what I'm saying. We have to look at it and realize that those of us who have recovered our minds have to unite, have to overcome the false divisions and competition and jealousies and ego trips inflicted on us, not only by ourselves, but by the system, and find a new basis of unity. We've already started doing that successfully. Our Republic Alliance is now working in nine countries based on this whole perspective. And it's what we're doing starting in February and March again, using, again, the weak point of the enemy at these genocidal churches, which is still funding the the COVID corporatocracy and the big pharma. The Vatican alone has $9.5 billion invested in Pfizer. They have a long relationship, these churches, where they give children for drug testing and in return get a lot of money from big pharma. Uh, Eli Lilly had a thing called the uh, Theological Endowment Fund, in which they funded churches and in return the churches would hand over the children for the drug testing. Not just Native children, but a lot of them. It still goes on today. That's why all the churches have big signs saying, get your shot. Of course, because they're going to profit. Well, those churches are the most vulnerable. It's hard to hit at the state. It's hard to hit a big pharma, although we do know where they live. (laughs) But it's a lot easier to hit at their main funder and their main ideological prop, which are these genocidal churches. The Vatican Bank is directly funding the Chinese takeover of North America, Australia, the whole areas geopolitically that are important to them. So we, too, you know, can strike using the art of world techniques that we're going to be instructing people in these training workshops, how to do that on the ground, and 
we can break those weak links. We've done it in the past. We, Whenever we struck at the churches in the past, they began to collapse. We're going to be doing it again starting next month. So use the show today. It's going to be posted soon, today hopefully, at bbsradio.com slash who we stand. Share the show, and most importantly, get involved in the uh, training workshops and the teach-ins in the early part of February next month, in just a few weeks, and then the direct actions, February 12th, 19th, 26th, especially on Sunday, February 26th, in memory of our brother William Coombs at St. Paul's Hospital in downtown Vancouver, 11 a.m. that day at Berard and Helmican. Be there, we'll be there with our bullhorns and our coffin, and then going down to our reclaimed William Coombs Memorial Park across from the most murderous institution in human history, ensconced at Holy Rosary Catholic Church in Dunsmuir and Richards in downtown Vancouver. But anywhere in the world, we're going to be conducting these. Now, um, finally, to get a hold of us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com, MurderByDecree.com, RepublicOfCanada.org, and write to me, yours truly, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice at AngelFire101 at ProtonMail.com. So we'll be back again live next week, and we'll be going out on a really good song. It's from the Italian resistance during World War II. It's called Bella Ciao. The words are self-explanatory, updated to today. Take heart, take inspiration, stay strong, stay clear, get strong, get clear. We'll be back next week. This is Kevin Annett. I thank you. the best.